following message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. outside again today and it's appropriate that it's windy because I want to speak again about the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like the wind and in recent weeks we have been looking at how the Holy Spirit is given to open our eyes to the Father's perspective on our lives in Christ so that anyone who will receive his Spirit can begin to think from his heavenly perspective. We were born from above to think from above and only when we begin to think the thoughts of the Father toward us can we speak words that are filled with His view and opinion, His doxa, His glory. And such glorious words carry His life and power, carry His illumination into this world. For nothing can light up a person's life more than hearing God's word on them. Now I mentioned a couple of times in recent weeks that uh, how often I've wanted to uh, speak about a subject uh, but get carried away uh, and never actually get to the topic. And there is a topic I've been wanting to speak about for a few weeks, and that is the subject of our friend Gideon. Uh, but I could never quite get to him, but today I'm finally going to get to Gideon. And the reason I wanted to get to him is because for weeks now I've been speaking on the union of Christ with his body, the church. And I know how unearthly that sounds. To begin to speak to people of the Father's heavenly perspective on them in Christ sounds so outlandish and alien to those of us who've always been spoken to and spoken of ourselves according to our earthly record. Such language can not only sound foolish but also offensive, especially when you've been brought up to believe that the lower opinion you have of yourself, the more pleased God will be. But as we saw last week, godly humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Jesus described himself as gentle and humble, and yet even as he washed the disciples' feet, John tells us he did that knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that from God he had come, and to God he was going. It is only when we are secure in our identity, and know that we have nothing to prove to ourselves or anyone else, that our actions become truly humble, because they're neither self-conscious nor self-centered. If we refuse the identity God has for us in Christ, holy and righteous, that is not an act of humility, but of pride. For it is always those who are seeking to establish their own righteousness who refuse the righteousness that comes from God. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. For all those who will believe in him, accept their new life in him, no longer an I life, but an us life. You know, many of us as Christians have been brought up to think that it is only after we die and go to be with the Lord that we can truly participate in the life of Christ. And with that mindset, it's not surprising that it has become almost the norm in the church for the gospel to be shared as a message about the future. It's all about you getting to call heaven your home one day after you die. With that mindset, multitudes of Christians, church has become for us more like an intermediate state, a place you have to wait in for years before you get to be with the Lord. I don't believe Jesus' vision for his church was purgatory, but rather heaven on earth. 
Yes, it's wonderful that one day we shall have glorified bodies and live in a place where there's no more sickness and no more grief and no more death. But the gospel is not a message about our desire to make heaven our home one day. It is a message about God's desire to make us his home today. Let me say that again. The gospel is not a message about our desire to make heaven our home one day. It is a message about God's desire to make us his home today. You know, when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he taught them to speak to the Father, not about leaving earth to go to a heavenly kingdom one day, but about his kingdom coming and so his will being done on the earth as it is in heaven today. Speaking of the desire of himself and his Father to be with us, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, we will come to them and make our home with them. Let me ask you a question. Which is greater, heaven or the one who made heaven? So which is greater, getting to heaven or receiving the one who made heaven? Yes, church, it will be great to receive the inheritance of heaven one day, but what if we already have something greater today? What if God never intended our lives to be about us achieving heaven because he never intended life for us to be about our achievements, but about his gift, the gift of his presence with us? Remember the words Jesus put in the mouth of the father of the elder brother in Luke 15, a son who had spent all his life waiting for and working for an inheritance that he felt he deserved. The father said, son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. In effect, he was saying, why are you waiting for something better? If you have me, then you already have all that I have. I think there is a great awakening coming to the church. We're going to awaken to Emmanuel, God with us, awaken to a knowing of his presence that so fills us with his joy over us that we can't help but do exploits that manifest the kingdom of God on the earth because that's what God's people have always done when they have really known that God is with them. The people who know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That speaking of people who know God is speaking of people who know God as God with me. You know, right the way through the Bible, the way God's people have always come into an experience of knowing God with me is through being spoken to by Him. But for all of them, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't easy to immediately receive what he said. I mean, being spoken to by God was an overwhelming experience, not least because what he says, what he speaks to us, appears to take no account of our earthly record, our experience of life. When God speaks to us, he speaks to us according to the glorious riches of his eternal thoughts and plans toward us, not according to our low opinion of ourselves, formed in this temporal passing away life. Let me put that another way. And we've said this before, there was a time in your life and mine when as infants we behaved no better than a dog would. But our parents never spoke to us as a dog because they knew of our great worth and destiny long before we did. When God speaks to us in that way, with words so glorious and a gospel so glorious in his generosity towards us, it appears to fly in the face of our comparatively miserable, ordinary, sin-filled life. So much so that such words can sound not only foolish, but also offensive. And that's the reason I've wanted to talk about Gideon. Before too many people took offense at what I was saying and gave up listening. See, Gideon is a classic example 
of the way our earthly minds react against God's perspective on our lives and why. In fact, the Bible is full of accounts of men and women who are totally taken aback when the Spirit of God speaks to them and calls them into a destiny and name that in their opinion they're totally unqualified for and unsuited for. I'm going to show you this morning that God's answer to all our objections to the way he speaks to us is always the same. Go, for I am with you. Church, the reason I've been speaking for 11 weeks on the union of Christ with his body is that it is only to the degree that we will believe he is with us that we can go. There are places he has destined his church to go to in this generation that we cannot go to without a greater revelation that we go with the Lord as one man. The Lord is saying to his church, I am so with you that with me, what you're about to do will be done as one man. That was the very phrase that God's Spirit spoke into Gideon's life. The truth that raised him up, that started living him from God's eternal perspective for his life. And he was a man living under the old covenant when the Holy Spirit came and went. How much more should those words be true for a people under the new covenant to whom God has said, go, for I am with you even to the very end of the age. So before we look at Gideon struggling to take in his eternal name, it would be good to remind ourselves again that God does indeed have such an eternal name, a calling on our lives that has nothing to do with our earthly record. Let me remind you of a scripture we looked at several weeks ago, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. It speaks of the Apostle Paul saying not to be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know, verse 9 clearly says, we are called not according to our works. We are called not according to what we have done or haven't done in this life. We're called according to God's own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Your identity, your name in God's eyes is only to be found in Christ. But the religion that comes from earth, from mere earthly human wisdom, says that God names you after your works. So work hard and above all, do lots of holy things that you may establish your name as holy and righteous in God's sight. Here's the problem with religion. As long as you are trying to establish a name for yourself through the way you live your life, you will struggle to submit to accept the name God has for you. As long as you're trying to establish a name for yourself through the way you live your life, you will struggle to submit to accept the name God has for you. Earthly religion, you see, teaches men to name themselves. And that's because earthly religion is for orphans, those who live not knowing their father and so not hearing his name for them. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. And he could say that because he knew the primary revelation of the Holy Spirit would not be to show men what they needed to do, but to reveal to them the fatherhood of God in Christ, to show them who they are, that they may be who they are, because God knows that doing always flows from being. His will for our lives 
was never that we would attempt to do things for him with our being separated from his being. Rather, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in my being, remain in me, share my life, and you will bear much fruit, as a branch can only bear fruit in being connected to the vine. See, the life God sees us living in being one with him is so far and above and beyond what we've ever asked or imagined that when we insist on living under the name we have taken from our experience in this world, the name the Father in heaven has for us seems too good to be true. The fact that God refuses to name you after your life can also seem to the earthly mind offensive, which is why the gospel of heaven has always been offensive to the religion of earth, for it appears to take no account of our lives. It appears to take no account of our lives. So let's look at the scriptures today in Judges 6 and see how the name God gives to Gideon offends him precisely because it appears to take no account of Gideon's life. If you remember the background of this story, which is mentioned in the first few verses of Judges 6, for years and years, as long as Gideon can remember, the enemies of Israel have been plundering them and God appears to have done nothing about it. Gideon's experience of God is that God has abandoned him. Gideon's earthly experience of himself is that he is so weak that he's had to hide in a hole in the ground. I love this account of Gideon as an account of the gospel of heaven meeting the religion of earth because Gideon is at such a low earthly perspective on his life. He isn't even standing on the earth. He's even lower. He's standing down a hole physically and spiritually. There are people listening to this message and you have named yourself after what has happened to you. You may never admit that as a good Christian. You may sing in church like everybody else, but the truth is that you have let what has happened to you name you. And that truth is found in the fact that today you feel spiritually like you're standing in a hole in the ground, feeling you're as far from the blessing of God as is possible to be. You know, as Gideon stood in that hole, he, like so many of us, was someone who allowed what had happened to him to name him. I mean, that's my struggle in life, in this world, not to allow the things that have happened to me to name me. And I have to be honest, I do allow that to happen. And there are times when I just speak things over my life that the Spirit of God would not want me to say. But I thank God for people around me who will speak into me, call me forth, speak to me after the Spirit, not after the flesh, that I would begin to see myself in the same way. You see, Gideon, he had named himself after what had happened to him. So Gideon was living from this name abandoned by God and powerless. Now listen to the first words out of God's mouth recorded in verse 12. When he spoke to Gideon, he said this, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Whoa. When God speaks, the name he gives you is always the exact opposite of what your enemy has been trying to name you. How much higher are God's thoughts than man's thoughts, as high as the heavens are from the earth? Many of us as believers have been living for so long under an earthly religious mindset that when we first hear the name the gospel of heaven calls us by, the righteousness of God, we simply cannot accept it. For it seems to take no account of our lives, either a lifetime of sin or a lifetime of sacrifice. Words from the Spirit of God always pierce the heart. They expose our true beliefs because they address directly what we have believed. Religion is content to ask men, what are you doing? The gospel asks us, what are you believing? To be told that God is with them 
and that he is mighty in God's eyes is too much for Gideon. And so it draws out of him the unbelief that he is living from. God's words pierce his heart and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We could say God offended him to reveal what was in his heart. So in verse 13, we hear from Gideon's mouth what has been hidden in his heart. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. You know, every time I read that, pouring out of Gideon's heart, the picture that comes to my mind is that of lancing an abscess. When I was a vet, I had to lance abscesses, that is to stick a knife or a scalpel blade into a buildup of poison under the skin. And one of the main causes of abscesses was animal bites, especially the bite of a cat. Although I'm told by nurses that human bites are worse. I believe the lies we believe are like receiving bites from a snake. Some of the things religion has taught us have deposited the poison of unbelief in us. And now from that seed, there has grown a great deposit of fear, anxiety, frustration, and anger, like an abscess ready to burst. It leaks out from time to time through the words we say in unguarded moments. But in general, as Christians, we're expert at hiding these abscesses, these deposits of frustration, unbelief, and anger at the way life is turning out, at the way, despite all our best efforts, we don't appear to be blessed in the way we thought we would be. But God knows the one thing above all that lances such abscesses. One thing above all annoys the hell out of religious people like you and me, people who have named ourselves after our own lives, the generosity of God. In Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the dutiful elder brother worked religiously for the father, believing that because of the works of his life, his father would name him co-heir and share all that he had with him. Now, we've already read in 2 Timothy this morning that God's calling, his naming of us, is not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace already given to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, he names us according to his works, according to his mercy and grace, according to his love, his nature. Now, if you have believed the lie of religion that God names you and gives to you because of what you have done, that if you just keep working away hard at your behavior and your lifestyle, that there will come a breakthrough moment when God will reward you, well then by now, that belief planted in you may already be germinating into frustration, disappointment, and anger. You may appear from the outside to be happily working away for God, but there is an abscess of frustration building up inside of you, and God is a knife sharp enough to lance that abscess so that all the poison comes to the surface. That knife is the gospel of God's grace, the revelation from heaven of the generosity of a loving Father who refuses to name us after our lives, for he wants us to live extraordinary lives, and extraordinary lives are lived by people who believe extraordinary things. And church, there is nothing on this earth more extraordinary to believe than the name God gives you in Christ Jesus, children of God. It was when the elder brother saw the generosity of his father toward the prodigal son, when he saw that his father was taking no account of what the prodigal had done, that he was loving him as a son. Seeing that, lanced the abscess, and out came the poison hidden in the elder brother's heart, unbelief. Listen to what he said. All these years I've worked for you, 
and got nothing for it, not even a skinny goat. He didn't believe in his father because all along he had been believing in himself. Beware the poison of religion, any message that leaves your hope on what you do for God. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees, for it will only teach you to believe in yourself. The more you believe in your righteousness, the name you give yourself, the more you will struggle to receive the righteousness that comes from God, the name God gives you, righteous in my son, by my gift of grace, not your lifetime of sacrifice. So right in the midst of our life of troubles, while we're standing in our hole in the ground, wondering just what exactly more do we have to do after all these years of sacrifice to get anything out of God, along comes the gospel of grace. The message that your life as a believer is now hidden with Christ and God, that you are in fact the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that message is offensive enough to draw out into the open the unbelief that much of the church has been living in. Here's a question. Why does God want a message preached that is offensive enough to draw unbelief into the open? Because despite what you will hear every Sunday in most churches, God doesn't see sin as the biggest problem in the church. He sees unbelief as the biggest problem. Jesus worked his greatest miracles among sinners, but it was in his hometown that he could do the least because it was amongst those who thought they knew him best that he found the greatest unbelief. God is merciful to us. He knows how religious, how self-conscious our thinking can be. And so he has a remedy, he has an answer to all of our objections to him calling us by a name that takes no account of our works. His answer is to never stop speaking to us our true name. You know, in reply to Gideon's list of objections, the Lord says nothing. All of Gideon's objections he ignores, as if he can't even see what Gideon is talking about. Verse 14 gives us his reply. It says, The Lord looked at him and said, Go, in this your strength, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Remember when the prodigal son returned home, he had a speech too prepared for his father, in which he listed all the things he had done wrong, and stated that the only way to right the wrong was for him to now become a servant and pay back all he owed. Do you know what the father's response to him was? To act as if he had not heard a word he said. To act as if nothing the son had done had ever changed his view and opinion of him. The father just continued to dress him and address him, not according to his works, but according to his sonship. That's what God does here with Gideon. In reply to Gideon's objections, the Lord just says, Go, in this your strength, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Go in what strength? Well, the strength Gideon is to go in is the name God has given him. God has given him the name, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What a name to live in. Mighty warrior whom the Lord is with. <laughs> That's what it is to live in Christ. You see, as far as God is concerned, he is speaking that name from outside of time, from eternity. He is speaking that name as if it's already happened, as if Gideon has already saved his nation. God has such confidence in the name he gives that when he speaks, it's as good as done. How could Jesus go around speaking to people as if their sins had been forgiven and their sicknesses already healed? Because that is how you can speak when you can see from an eternal perspective. Because from an eternal perspective, the lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. 
See, God wants us to see as He sees. Because when you see from an eternal perspective, you can see and you can speak from the perspective of a finished work. The spirit of this world can never enable you to speak as the spirit that comes from God can. For He causes us to know just how much has been freely given to us. God here speaks to Gideon as if victory is a finished work. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Let me read that to you from Jung's literal Greek translation. Go in this thy power, and thou hast saved Israel out of the hand of Midian. Have not I sent thee? God is saying, from my perspective, when you go in my name, it's already done. Now that is how the Lord wants us to live. Go as if it's already done. Go in your eternal name. Rise out of the temporal realm of I will call myself victorious after I have won. I will call myself righteous after I have lived a righteous life. And rise instead into the eternal realm, into your eternal name from God. Victorious and righteous in Christ today. More than a conqueror today. Not because of anything I do for him, but because of everything he has done for me. If you go in that name, you will bring the eternal realm into the temporal realm. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, they're passing away. But the things that are not seen are eternal. You see, in the temporal realm, in time, man can only call himself after his works. That natural understanding, that natural sight, by that Gideon cannot call himself mighty warrior, cannot live as if victorious now. He believes that he must win the victory first before he can call himself victorious and live as if victorious. You see, religious understanding, apart from the revelation of the Holy Spirit, can only call someone after their own record in this temporal world. And with such a religious natural mindset, men will refuse to call themselves victorious or righteous until they have achieved that themselves. That is not how God brings his eternal purposes to pass on the earth. It's not how he reveals the things that cannot change and cannot be shaken in a world where everything is being shaken. He doesn't do it through the natural strength of men, but by grace through faith, he gives revelation by his spirit of his eternal purpose and that revelation enables men to walk in God's eternal purposes in this realm. And through such lives, the kingdom of God, the eternal realm, is manifested on the face of the earth. He speaks by his spirit of what he declares from the eternal realm to be true. And because his words are spirit and life, those words impart faith, the ability for us to see what he sees and so believe what he believes. Listen to how the Lord brought about a great victory through Joshua outside that fortified city of Jericho, recorded in Joshua 6. It says, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You see, just like with Gideon, God is speaking to Joshua as if it's already done. Yes, there followed a list of instructions as to how Joshua would receive what had been given. But those instructions were useless to anyone who could not see by the Spirit. See, from God's perspective, how ready, how given was the city. God's first instruction to Joshua was see. 
If we, the church, are having difficulty receiving what has been given, walking as giants in this land, as sons of the Most High God, the answer is not to be found in issuing more and more instructions on how to take this land, but in allowing the Holy Spirit to open our eyes wider to see what God has already given. The biggest problem the church has today is not a sinning problem, but a seeing problem. Men and women who see by the revelation of the Spirit, who see by the Spirit, know the heart of the Father, know that God does not save and call people according to what they have done. He is the God who called a coward hiding in a hole in the ground, mighty warrior, because he saw Gideon according to his purpose and grace, not according to what he had done. He is the God who called an escaped murderer the deliverer of my people, because he saw Moses according to his purpose and grace, not according to what he has done. He is the God who called an adulterer and a murderer a man after my own heart, because he saw David according to his purpose and grace, not according to what David had done. He is a God who called a man who broke his promise and betrayed him in his hour of need a shepherd of my sheep, because he saw Peter according to his purpose and grace, and not according to what he had done. Now what does he call you? He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know, in this life, there are only two types of people, those who live by the name they've given themselves and those who live by the name God gives them. The first will strain in life, the second will reign in life. Paul and Silas singing in that jail at midnight, whipped and shackled. What a wonderful picture of reigning in life because they were refusing the name that this passing away world was trying to place on them, abandoned by God. I think the most powerful picture of someone reigning in life is Christ standing beaten and disfigured before Pilate. I remember being beaten in school with a stick in public before a class. I remember the humiliation of it the intimidation that followed as you dared not step out of line afterwards in case they did it again. Pilate, he would have known exactly that, the effect of a vicious beating on someone and how men returned from it broken and begging for mercy. Yet in walks Jesus, bloodied and bruised, and stands before Pilate in all the authority of a king. Pilate was shocked because Jesus walked in before him and spoke to him as if what had just happened to him had in no way affected his belief in who he was. That is reigning in life. It is to be so convinced of your eternal identity that this world and anything it does to you can no longer name you or change you. That is how we can live if we allow the Holy Spirit, the wind of God, to open our eyes to the truth that we have been gifted the very righteousness of God, a righteousness that is eternal, a righteousness that comes from above, not from the efforts of our flesh. But if we will not receive the gift of His righteousness and His abundant provision of grace, the ability to live as a child of God in union with God, then we cannot reign in this life. We cannot feel as close to God on our worst day of failure as on our best day of self-control. We will remain zealously trying to establish our own righteousness. And even though we may quote scripture and go to church and have all the right opinions on all the great moral issues of the day, we will not be people of influence in this world. For when the world looks at us, it will not see people reigning in life. It will only see people straining in life. Any gospel that does not show you how God now sees you has no power, for as a man thinks, so he is. 
And if your gospel lets you think of yourself as a mere man, then that is how you will continue to live. If your gospel lets you think of yourself as a mere man or woman, then that is how you will continue to live. It is our communities that suffer from such a powerless gospel because they do not need to see mere men. They need to see Jesus. They need to see the Son of God. And it was God's purpose that every generation would see the Son of God in His church, in the sons of God. Believer, do not let this world, your temporal experience of life, name you. You are not abandoned by God and powerless. You are the one He is with. And if you go in that name, then you can overcome anything this world throws at you as one man. Even on the worst days of your life, you can reign in life. For when you receive your eternal name, accepted in Christ, all the rejection in the world will not move you. Now, may the Spirit of God awaken us, His church, to righteousness, to the presence in our lives of His righteous life, Emmanuel, God with us, and all by His grace, not our works, that there would be no boasting in His church, and so no division in His body. God bless you.